This is The Bible in Depth with PJ. Join us as we take a deeper look into scriptures and study the Word of God together. Now here is Pastor Jim. Hey everybody, we're back. It's our uh, midweek uh, Bible study and we're traveling through the Old Testament little letter of Ruth. It's a love story and we're coming near the conclusion of this book. We're not quite done, but we're getting there. And today we're going to look at, or we're going to pick up at Ruth chapter 3 at verse 15. And uh, we're going to, we have titled this one, To Rest While God Works, which is not an easy thing to do. To rest and trust God while God works. So let's get right into it. If you've been following the Bible studies, you know where we left off. We're going to continue on. Uh, verse 15 says this. Again he said, Give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. So she has already proposed marriage to him. And now he's going to start doing something about that because there's some legal maneuvering he's got to do uh, since he is not the nearest kinsman. We have found that out. But he says, give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. So she held it. And he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. And then she went into the city. So he's given her a lot of food to take home. Um, Verse 16, when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did it go, my daughter? Because you're carrying all this food, man. How'd it go? Because remember, the mother-in-law said, clean up, you know, put on the perfume, the whole thing, do your hair right, and go lay at his feet to see what happens and see if he covers you. It was not a sexual gesture. It was a very, very uh, proper gesture to see if he would redeem her. And she told her all that the man had done to her, for her. She said, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said, do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Wow. Then she said, wait. Wait, my daughter. Now, these are the next instructions from Naomi. Wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest until he has settled it today. She goes, okay, mission accomplished, you know. It seems very favorable, you know. Now you just relax, because he's going to go. He's going to go take care of business. Now I want to pull out some things out of these verses here. First off, he gives her six measures of barley, six, not five, not seven, but six. And then she goes home, and the mother-in-law says, "Now you wait and you rest, <clears throat> because Boaz, he's got to go clear some things up because he's not the nearest relative. Somebody else. There's one person." who's a near relative who can redeem her and the land inheritance. He can do these things. So Boaz does not have first shot. So he's going to go do things right. But he gives her six measures of barley, and then she goes home and she's told to rest. Let me give you an application. Six measures of barley. God worked for six days, creating this world. Could he have worked for 100 days? Yeah. Could he... Could he create under the eighth year and the tenth year? Yeah, he could have kept creating all he wanted. But he did all the creation in six days. And then he rests on the seventh day. She's given six measures of barley. The mother-in-law says the man will keep working until it's done. So you just relax in that. Now you kind of put all these things together and you realize, because Boaz is a picture of Jesus Christ and, and Ruth is a picture of us Gentiles you know, in need of a savior, that he's going to go do the work. That we just rest in that. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Remember on the cross, he says, 
at the end of it all, he goes, it is finished. Mission accomplished. He came and he did what he said he was going to do. He finished the work of salvation. He did it all, and we just rest in that. That's redemption. But I want to take an application for our lives, because I think this is where we all uh, struggle. I do. Uh, I'll be honest on this one. This is not easy. Um, Verse 18, she tells her daughter, I, I just want you to wait. Here's my next instructions. Just wait. Think about Ruth. Put yourself in her place. You're going to wait. He's going off to talk to the nearest relative to see if the nearest relative will want to redeem her and, in fact, marry her. So Ruth sits here, and she really doesn't know What's going to happen? She doesn't know if her husband's going to be Boaz, who she's gotten to know a little bit now. He's a great guy. Or will it be this other man who's the nearest relative who she probably doesn't even know? Now, I would say that this is anxiety time for old Ruth. Who am I going to marry? What's going to happen? Or maybe it wasn't anxiety time. Maybe the flip side happened. Maybe she just trusted Boaz. Maybe she trusted that the right things are going to turn out, and so she could rest in that. And maybe she didn't have any anxiety in that. Now think about that. She is waiting. Now, when I say waiting, remember, she's done everything she could do up to this point. She's gone. She was laying at his feet. She made the proposal, he covered her, you know, the whole thing. So he's going to go see about being able to marry her. She's done everything she could. So it's not about doing nothing. But there comes a moment in time where she's basically waiting now for the right relationship. Will it be Boaz? Will it be this other guy? Waiting for a right relationship. Okay. I want you to turn to Psalm 127. If you have your Bible, if not, I'll turn there. I'll read it to you. Psalm 127, which um, is right there at the top of the list of some of my favorite psalms. In verse 1 and 2, it says this. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. So you want God to build your life. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. So you want God to be the protector of your life. Now watch this. Verse 2. It is vain. Vain is a word that means meaningless. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late. Now it's not saying it's wrong to wake up early, but he's saying if you're waking up early, really early, and going to bed really late to eat the bread of painful labors, meaning you're working from morning till night, you're going, going, going every day, He says, that's meaningless, because it says, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Now, we can go off on that, because so many of us are workaholics, and uh, we just drive ourselves to the ground. And really, we're thinking that we we are God, and we make it all happen, and we're not leaving room for God to do it. We're not resting when we should take our rest and allowing God to do what God can do. She is now called to rest, Ruth is, and let Boaz do what only Boaz can do. I like that. Not easy to do, but she's trusting. 
And this is calling us, trust God, that God is going to put the final pieces in place. You rest. You relax. This was a hard one for me to learn a long time ago, but let's bring it back into the context of what, I, what I'm trying to say here. Rest in God. Trust Him. You do all that you're supposed to do, all that you can do, and then trust God to do the rest. That is not easy. And that can cause a lot of anxiety in your life and in my life during that waiting time and trusting time. But it really shouldn't. But if we trust God and grow in our trust, I know it's a process. I want you to see this. Uh, turn to Matthew chapter 6. Because some of you may be in a waiting game right now. You're waiting on God for something. I think every one of us is waiting on God for something. Uh, I don't think that is something that goes away. I think as soon as something, one thing happens, we turn around and we're waiting on God for something else. But in Matthew chapter 6, it's the great chapter on anxiety and worry. And I'm only going to read two verses of the eight or nine verses that we could read. And it says in verse 25 of Matthew 6, he says, um, <clears throat> For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life. Now, why would Jesus say, don't be worried? He says it because guess what we do? We worry. We stress. It's hard for us to sit still just to trust God. You know what the word worry means there? It means to be pulled apart. Now, think about worry in your head. It means your mind's being pulled in two different directions. That's a, a, a clear-cut example of a double-minded person. On the one hand, I trust, I believe in it, I doubt, I don't know. Oh, I have faith, I have peace. Oh, no, I'm worrying, and, I, and I've lost my peace. That, that's double-minded. The mind is being pulled apart. So he says, don't, don't be worried about your life. Sometimes I just say, Jesus, it's easy for you to say. But I, then he says, but as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body, as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? He's telling us that a whole body example, a whole life example, I should say, our sustenance, the provision. He says, don't stress about those things. And for some people right now, that's a big stressor with the, the quarantines and the closing down of businesses. This is a big deal right now in people's lives. There's no doubt about this. But he's saying, don't, don't stress. Don't worry about that. And he goes through a whole litmus test of, of examples, and they're great examples. It's very logical in how God takes care of us and how valuable we are. But then he goes to verse, all the way to verse 33, and he says, Jesus says this. Here's what you need to do instead. He says, but instead of all this worry, in verse 33 it says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You know what the ultimate competitor is to putting God first in your life and trusting Him? Stuff. What I eat, what I drink, what I wear. He says, don't stress over that. Don't make that the priority. Here's the priority of your life, Jim. Seek first Jesus. Seek first His kingdom. The kingdom of God is a kingdom that's above all kingdoms. And His righteousness, what He says is the right way to live. Do that. Live that. Seek that. Don't worry. Instead of worrying, do this. And if I do that, He says all the stuff that I used to worry about, I won't worry about it anymore. Because I'm going to find out that God provides for me. 
that God does take care of me, and He uses a lot of people around me to take care of me too. Same thing with you as you build fellowship. Now, isn't that what Ruth has done? Watch this. Go back to Ruth, the, the letter in Ruth, but watch um, verse chapter 1 and verse 16. Watch what she did at the very beginning. It says in verse 16 of chapter 1, But Ruth said, this is when they're leaving Moab to come back, and Naomi's saying, Go back home. Don't follow me. I don't have any more sons that can marry you. Stay. But Ruth said, uh, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And watch this. And your God, my God. Oh, wow. So way back in the beginning, we find that Ruth has made Yahweh God her God. She's seeking first the kingdom of God. She's seeking first God. Now, I think that's a little bit of insight cross-reference with the Matthew 6 chapter where we begin to see that maybe that she could have rest. Maybe she didn't go home in stress. Maybe she wasn't filled with worry. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? I'm not saying she's completely perfect and didn't think about these things. We all do. But you know, we can lower our levels of stress and worry and anxiety in our life by seeking first God. Let me tell you a secret about when you seek God. And, and you'll find this true. Some of you have been studying for a long time. Um, as you study who, especially who Jesus is, the, char the character of God, when you understand God's character and know it, you trust His character because He will not go against His character, which means He won't go against His word. You all know people that you trust and you know people that you don't trust. The people you trust, you have seen them, you have watched their character in action, and they are spot on, man. They can be trusted. But you've also seen some people here and there that'll say one thing, do another, say one thing, do another, tell you yes really means no, and they don't have the character, and you don't trust that. The more you get to know God and seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, you're gonna find out His character God doesn't go against his character, and you can trust that character, and you're going to find through experiences as you go along that God is fulfilling his character. And that, that brings about um, a lot of peace. Even in those times when there's no earthly reason that you should have peace. There is no human uh, reason where you can look at your situation and say, I shouldn't have peace, and and calm right now, but I do, because I trust the character of God. You know, see, he who comes to God must know that he is. What do you mean he is? Who his character is, and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. It's a simple process. Now, chapter 4 of Ruth, verse 1. Yeah, we're heading into the last chapter. Yikes. Now, Boaz, here he goes, because remember, Naomi said, the man will not rest. He's going to get it done today. Now, Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. Um, there's a few things going on here. First, of, first off this, <clears throat> the gate. Why does Boaz go to the gate? 
Well, the gate is the place of authority in any city. It's a place of transactions where legal matters were resolved. Um, business transactions happen in those places. <clears throat> but the leading men of the city would gather in spots like that. Um, but here's a little interesting little tidbit for those of you who like little tidbits. I like little tidbits. Um, look at Proverbs chapter 31. You know, the virtuous woman, the kind of woman that every guy wants to find and marry is... In this, in this chapter 31, you know, uh, from verse 10 to 31 is the virtuous woman. But notice one thing about the man that the virtuous woman is married to. In verse 23 it says, Her husband is known in the gates where he sits among the elders of the land. What does that mean? It means that this woman has picked a winner. <laughs> He's a leading man. He's a man of character. He's a man to get things done. He's that kind of a guy. And the man who is this leading man has picked a leading woman. She's the virtuous woman. Remember, <laughs> you always draw what you are. You know, likes find likes. It's just a fact of life. Now, back in Ruth chapter 4, verse 1, let's get more into this uh, verse 1, uh, a few thoughts here. So, Boaz in verse 1, it says, he went up to the gate and sat down. I, that's a little interesting little tidbit there because Ruth is told in chapter 3, verse 18, wait, meaning sit down, wait. Boaz, chapter 4, verse 1, he goes up to the gate, sits down, and he waits. So they're both waiting. Isn't that something? Just a little interesting thing there. But here's the deal. As Boaz is sitting at the gate, who strolls on by? The nearest relative. Here he comes, walking by, in that moment of time. I got a question. Is God moving the chess pieces? Is God moving the chess pieces? You better believe God's moving the chess pieces. Boaz just goes there to sit and wait. He doesn't know the guy's walking by. No, there's no inference here that, well, this time of the day he walked by there every day. It doesn't say that at all. We don't know. But the man comes strolling by and Boaz says, hey, I'd like to talk with you. Would you come and sit with me? Now, <clears throat> here's what I want to say. God is moving the chess pieces of your life and mine. But do we believe that? No, do we really believe that? Do we really believe? And by the way, Boaz had to go to the gate. It's not like he's sitting there back at his house, well, let's see what happens. No, he had to go to the gate. He had to, what we'll call, he had to position himself for success. And then God starts moving chess pieces. Let me tell you something about life. And, and it's for Christian, non-Christian, it's for anybody. A lot of people, well, I think all people experience success because They've positioned themselves for success. Likewise, there are some people that position themselves for a lack of success, meaning they never position themselves correctly. Now, it's easy when we position ourselves incorrectly and do not experience success to look at the successful people and say, well, that's not fair. That's Wait a minute here. Don't, don't, no, 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 do not blame them for being successful. You've got to position yourself for success. 
You must get in those positions, work hard, go to school, whatever it is, work through. You've got to do those things. You've got to develop your character to be the right person, to pick the right person. You've got to do those things. See, successful people, they have positioned or even repositioned themselves for success. Think of your salvation. How many bad decisions before you were a Christian? It was bad, led to bad things. And then you became a Christian and you repositioned yourself according to the Word of God, started to make right decisions, pursue things, and look at the success you've experienced. You know that's true. Boaz has positioned himself for success. He took the first big step. Go to the gate. Sit there and wait. You know, God does that all the time. If you read your Old Testament, New Testament, it's everywhere. God tells somebody, go do this, and you'll see that happen. When you get there, wait, you'll get the next bit of instructions. And that's just the way it works. God's not going to give you A to Z. He's going to give A, B, C. Go do A, B, C. Then he'll give you D and E and maybe F, etc., etc. But let me go back to it. You cannot sit back and think it's not fair. You know, I, I'm not having success. You've got to position yourself for success. You've got to go for it. And it takes work. And it takes time. And it takes energy. But you do those things because they pay off eventually. You know, a lot of times, the reason why we don't do those things is because we do not, um, we do not understand or even are willing to participate in delayed gratification. What do you mean delayed gratification, Jim? Well, people that get ahead, people that are successful, they would rather do a lot of other things and have fun and do this and that, but they've told themselves, no, I've got to delay that because I've got to get this stuff done. Delayed gratification. And when I get all these things done, then I can go do the fun stuff. They've taken that on a massive lifetime scale and say, I've got to get all this done. I've got to work my way through the company. I've got to develop my character. I gotta tell myself no to bad things, say yes to the right things. You know, I've gotta go to school and tell myself, no, I can't go out and goof off. I've gotta do homework. See, it's all delayed gratification because there's a prize, there's a success at the end of it. And it pays off. And some of you, some of us need to get that in our head. Nobody's gonna give it to you. At least they shouldn't be giving it to you. You gotta go work for that stuff. Now. Where I'm at, because I went way off topic there. Um, let's see. Um, so he's at the gate, and he says, can we talk? You know, they go, yeah, okay, we're, we're relative, let's talk. Verse 2, he says, um, now Boaz took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. So Boaz has the nearest relative sitting down. He goes, wait, and he gets 10 of the leading men of the city, the elders of the city, and he gets them there too. Why does he do this? Because... What happens is in, in normal kind of circumstances, you only need two or three witnesses. In the, but in the case of marriage or land transaction, you need a 10. You need 10 strong witnesses. Now, what does that mean? It means that Boaz is following the law. That's what he's doing. He's, he's always kept the law. And that's a good thing. He's not a lawbreaker. He's a good man. Now, verse 3 and 4 say this. 
Then he said to the closest relative, <clears throat> okay, are you listening, relative? Because Naomi, and they both know Naomi, it's a relative, who has come back from the land of Moab has to sell a piece of land. Now, it sounds to me that Naomi's got to sell the family land in Israel because she's not, she can't make it financially. Which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And he said, and this is the nearest relative. The nearest relative says, I, I'll redeem it. I'll, 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 I'll buy it. I, I got it. <clears throat> so Boaz says, you, you know, you got to buy the land, redeem it before somebody else scoops this up. Now, what's going on? Because this is a big deal. Uh, it, we don't understand it in our culture, but let me, let me explain it to you. See, <clears throat> when a, um, in Israel, when a family, in those days, when a family owned land, that land was theirs forever. It's supposed to be theirs forever because when they came into the promised land, they divided it up between tribes and then families, and they had their land, and that land stayed in the family. <clears throat> but if circumstances where you were in poverty or whatever led that you had to sell that land, well, the nearest relative could buy it from you. They had the first shot at that land, and so you'd give up that land. But here's the, here's the interesting thing, and this is the way they lived. This is what happened. If you sold your land after 50 years or at the year of Jubilee, the land you sold would automatically revert back to your family again. It all comes back again. Pretty good deal, huh? Pretty good deal. Now, Boaz, sneaky guy that he is, all he said is, uh, you know, you got to redeem. You want to redeem the land. If you don't redeem it, I mean, that's all he says. He's, <laughs> it's a land transaction, guy. <clears throat> and the near relative says, "Okay, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll redeem it. I'll, I'll, I'll give the money." But then, verse five comes the fine print. Now Boaz is laying it in with the big one here. Verse five. Then Boaz said, "On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi." The day you put the money up and you give her the money and you buy that land, you must also acquire Ruth, the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. We've already dialogued those things before, so we won't go back into it again. It's in, it's in previous uh, points, but I do need to go back into the text a bit to bring up some. He says, look, here's the fine print on the whole deal, buddy. <laughs> you buy the land, you marry the widow Ruth. Now, if he chooses not to, if he says, oh man, no, I, no, no can do. Now watch this. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 25, a little bit to your left. Deuteronomy 25, 7 through 10. And watch what happens if you do not redeem. It says, verse 7, But if the man does not desire to take his brother's wife, 
Then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate, to the elders of the city. My husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He is not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall summon him and speak to him. And if he persists and says, I do not desire to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of the elders, pull, pull his sandal off his foot. You're going to take his sandal off his foot because he don't want her. And spit in his face. Oh my gosh. And she shall declare, Thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. Verse 10. In Israel his name shall be called the house of him whose sandal is removed. Now that's probably scandalous to you and I going, so what scandal sandal removed? It's scandalous to these guys. But if he chooses not to redeem her to marry her, she takes off his sandal and spits in his face. Woo, man. And so it was a pretty intense moment. So he chooses not to after all. He's evading the responsibility. And, that, and that's basically what she's saying. By taking the shoe off, meaning he, he, he's uh, walked away from his responsibility. Now watch this, verse 6. The closest relative said, I can't. I can't redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. He's speaking to Boaz. You may have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. I can't do it. Why? Well, he says I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Why? Why? What's he saying? Well, let me give you the possibilities of what, what's going on here. Maybe it would jeopardize the inheritance for his own family. I, I don't know. Another thought is maybe he can't afford to, to take in Ruth. I, I don't know. Maybe that's a possibility. Another possibility is, remember, he told him, Ruth the Moabitess. She's not Jewish. She's from Moab. So these guys are Jews and she's from Moab. So it's like, well, maybe he doesn't want to marry anybody outside of the Jewish kingdom and the Jewish nation. Now, here's what I think. I think old Boaz was hoping that uh, this guy would say, oh, I can't do it. <clears throat> because he gets to marry her, and he gets to share everything he has in his life with this person. Now, <clears throat> let me bring out an interesting idea out of this. Boaz is a picture of Jesus. We've been saying that consistently. He's the, he's the Redeemer. Ruth, Gentile, she's a picture of the Gentile churches being saved. They go through the avenues of the way the laws are set up. The laws couldn't redeem her. The laws couldn't save her. The law, keeping the law, couldn't save us. What do you mean? What do you mean, Jim? You, you got to settle this, follower of Christ. You're not saved by what you do. You're saved by your faith in your Redeemer, Jesus Christ, and His grace poured upon us. We can't earn it. 
See, we're not saved by good works. We're not saved by obeying the laws. Do we try to obey the laws? Absolutely. Do we do good works? Yes, because God, I love God, God loves me. I'm going to do good stuff for people, for God. But it doesn't save me. And whenever we talk with people about salvation and they say, well, you just got to be a good person, this and that, I always like to say, well, how good's good enough? It's an unanswerable question. You don't know. Therefore, you're never going to have security. See, they went through the law. They went through this civil law. This is what it says. And, and, and it didn't save her. The man says no. The law couldn't save her. So, <clears throat> what we realize from this is this. The law in our own lives, the law condemns us. When you drive down the street, it says 35 miles an hour, you look down 40 miles an hour, you know you're condemned. <laughs> it's just that simple. The law condemns. But love redeems. Love redeems. See, <clears throat> Boaz is the redeemer and he loves her. The other man would have just done it through the law. Boaz is doing it through love. Love redeems. Law condemns. Let me show you something as I drive this last thought home. Turn to Galatians chapter 3, if you would. Galatians 3. And um, verse 21. And it says, Paul is the writer. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Oh, may it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. He's saying law can't impart life. If it could, then righteousness would be based on law. We could never be righteous enough because we can't keep the laws, you know. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus might, Christ might be given to those who believe. Paul is making a contrast trying to be justified by law versus faith in Jesus Christ. I can never be justified by law, but only by faith. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Now watch this statement. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. Now, <clears throat> the tutor was a servant in the home, like in a Roman home, that would take the children to school. So the law took us to school. It took us somewhere. It's a tutor. The law is a tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now <clears throat> that faith has come, we are no longer under the tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, now, what does that say? Let me, let me try to explain it to you. The law, keeping the, that was just our tutor. That, was, that, that schooled us. It made us realize, I can't keep, I can't keep the laws. It moved me and nudged me and moved me and nudged me to the realization that I can never be good enough. I violate law. See, 
The law is like a directional sign, not a final destination. It is a tutor. It's leading me somewhere. I love the 395 drive. I've spoken about it before. Like, let's say I'm going up to um, Bishop on 395. There are signs along the way, and somewhere through the desert there between Victorville and Lone Pine, you're going to the desert. Somewhere there's going to be a sign that says something like um, Bishop 110 miles. Now, that's a sign. It's not my destination. It's pointing me. It's directional. But my final destination would be Bishop to go to Schott's Bakery or something like that. The law, the law is a sign pointing me to the final destination, and that is Jesus Christ, the one who could only save me from myself because I can't keep the law. It's an impossibility. See, look, th this is why some of us, we just beat ourselves up because we fail, I didn't get it right, and we beat ourselves up for an hour or three days or something. You will never, ever always get it right. Neither will I. Do we strive to get it right through the power of the Spirit and the recreation of Jesus Christ inside of us? Yes, we've been regenerated. But we're going to fail in that here and there. I don't beat myself up. Don't beat yourself up. Because you're not saved by, if you can keep all the rules, that's not what you're saved by. You strive to keep them. You do good deeds. But that's not what saves you. You were saved when you put your faith in Jesus Christ and He justified you, declared you innocent, and that was it, man. That's why you could take all the bricks off. That's why you don't have to beat yourself up. That's why when the devil comes in and it says he accuses you day and night, you don't have to listen to that anymore. Because otherwise, if you do and you think you're saved by how good you can be and how many laws you can keep, guess what? You will always be insecure in your relationship with God. I mean, last thought. What we're dialoguing here is love over law. If you live law, I got to keep all the rules, keep all the rules. If you live law over love as the primary way of living, you'll always wonder God, where do I stand with you? Where do I stand with you? But if you live love over law, you don't negate the law, you try to live God's laws. But if you live love over law, you'll always know that you're always in right standing with God. You're always. Some of you, tragically, were in relationships where it was always about, you better get this right, you better get that right, or else that person would shun you or not talk to you or whatever until you got everything right. And so you always were insecure. Where do I stand? Where do I stand? Where do I stand? That's a law over love relationship. That's not healthy. You and I exist, live in a love over law relationship. God loves us. He died for us. We love him back. We're not going to always get it right. But because of his blood that he shed and that we know that he loves us, his love is eternal and it never goes away. He'll always love us. We know we're always in right standing. We always know where we stand. We're in right standing with Jesus Christ. 
The law didn't work. The man rejected Ruth, but here comes the lover. Here comes Boaz. He loves her. And love wins over law. Well, I'm going to stop there for today. Hey, great to have you with us. Hopefully this helped you in some way. God bless you. We'll see you later. Thank you for joining us. If you have any questions or need prayer, please send us an email to hello at nbcc.com. We'd love it if you would subscribe to this podcast and take a second to rate it. Until then, we'll see you next time.